Welcome to AECP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at AECP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everybody. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist, and I am the executive editor of journals here at ASCP. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the book Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I'm going to let our guests introduce themselves. Hey, everyone. I'm Patty Eshelman. I'm the director of laboratory operations at Western Missouri Medical Center here in the metropolis of Warrensburg, Missouri. I am also a certified MLS and have my advanced uh, certification as the DLM. So my journey with ASCP started as a CLMA member, Clinical Laboratory Management Association, and therefore had a seat on the Board of Certification Board of Governors. And through that exciting adventure, I was also chair of the DLM exam committee, where I now just serve as one of the members. So happy to be here, excited to talk about the book. Hi, everybody. My name is Jennifer Kasten. I am a pediatric pathologist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Also a member of the Pathologist Council at ASCP and have served on ASCP in a few other capacities as well. Um, I'm very gratified to be invited to join the podcast. I've often heard that I have a face for radio, so this is great. <laughs> That's hard to follow, but hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Constantine Kanakis. I'm a resident physician and educator here at Loyola Medicine in Chicago. Uh, I formerly also worked as a medical laboratory scientist for almost 10 years. Uh, I was part of ACP's 2017 40 Under 40 uh, with an LMU certificate, and I'm highly involved in ACP, especially in their Patient Champions Advisory Board, the Social Media Committee, the Commission for Continuing Professional Development, and I've written several things for laboratory case reports and choosing wisely. I'm a first-generation physician. I'll call myself mildly disabled with hearing loss, but I'm plugged in so I can hear you today fine. And my friends call me Aki, so I'm happy to be here. Awesome, you guys. Thank you guys so much for joining us. This is going to be such a great discussion. But before we get to the discussion, I need to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. As always, CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. So before we begin, I want to start by just sharing a little bit of a summary of the book. As we stated before, we're talking about the book Untamed, written by Glennon Doyle. And we just want to provide a summary to help those, one, to help those who have actually read it and would just like a little bit of a refresher, but then also for those who have not yet read it so that you can still get a lot out of the discussion today. So this book is Doyle's third memoir, and it revolves around the notion of, of freedom and setting yourself free from the social conditioning that women experience. And in the first part, she really talks about how she has felt caged throughout her life. And then she starts in the second part, she really reflects and focuses on the steps that she took to break away from that social conditioning. And then the third part centers around her journey to self-acceptance, um, really starting with reflections from really her early childhood and then into the present. And then through that self-exploration, she shares that she learns to release her need for control 
and to really call upon her own inner self for guidance. So my first question for all of you is, she mentions that the key to freedom is feeling your feelings, trusting your intuition, embracing imagination, and then finding courage. Do you agree with her that by embracing those parts of ourselves, women can be truly free or become free? Well, I can start out. What what the book really spoke to me about that is she talked about getting quiet and getting deeper. And a really funny story where she started out locking herself in a closet. So she'd go into a closet and she said, I can do this for five minutes. And then it was 10 minutes. And and it really, she taught herself how to go inward and how to listen to her own voice. And I think when we have so much bombarding us through our society and everything that's coming at us, it is most appropriate to get quiet and to identify exactly what our decisions are and taking that inner wisdom to guide our actions. Yeah, I found that part interesting because basically she's what she's doing is she's meditating, but she's not calling it meditation. Uh, I think it's reflective of her faith that she grew up in or whatever, that she's saying that she finds God inside. And I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to that description, but, you know, I'm not like an over overly religious person. So it's more of a, for me, it's more like a Buddhist meditation thing. But I think we're talking about the same thing. We're just using different language for it. Well, I think you can go back thousands of years and, and a lot of the world's cultures, a lot of received wisdom from a lot of traditions one of the dicta of life is know yourself, know yourself, understand who you are, understand your unique set of motivations, your gifts, your struggles, but the route forward always lies in self-knowledge. And I think she's, she's reiterating that. And yeah, she's, she's putting a lens because I think it's, it's fairly safe to say, um, you know, the, the book is, is fairly gendered. And I think she's, she writes to women who often feel potentially more emotional or more empathetic. And sometimes those traits can be derided. Those traits can be seen as negatives. They can be seen as drawbacks. In a world that's supposed to be tough, objective, fair, and hard-headed, feeling lots of emotions and feeling like a highly sensitive person is, is sometimes portrayed as a drawback. And I think what, what she's trying to offer is to women who identify with that trope, and of course it need not necessarily be women, but for women who identify with that trope, feel what you feel, feel the full spectrum of human emotion, there is strength in that and meditate upon that. We could use that word in a, you know, I think a, a neutral sense, meditate upon that, know yourself. And that's when you'll find the way forward that makes sense for you and your life and your circumstances. I, I feel really lucky that I was brought in on this tour by the author, you know, from as an outside perspective to see this sort of insight into what um, Patty and Jennifer you're talking about, right? She she says a couple times also with some stories about how it's important to get in touch with your emotions by being brave, right? And there are several instances of what bravery really means. And it seems that the most successful version of understanding this for one's own sake and being free is that bravery sometimes means the attitude that she sort of made in the mid halfway through the book where blessed are the people that make things uncomfortable or awkward. And you get in touch with these like raw emotions and you sort of either, like Patty said, be quiet or engage with those emotions and sort of meditate your way through your own personal space to create that next step. And I, I was really cool to be part of that insight. Why do you guys think that women tend to ignore 
these areas of who they are. And I, and I, you know, like you pointed out, Jennifer, like this book is fairly gendered. She's focusing on, on the, like the woman's journey, but I certainly don't think that women are the only ones who do this. I don't think it's necessarily a totally gendered thing. I mean, I like to say the patriarchy hurts us all in, in a variety of ways. I'll just sign off right now. Yeah. <laughs> You're here to be the comedic foil in the eye candy. Aki. <laughs> yeah. Or the ear candy, as it were. I've upstairs. always wanted to be eye candy on the radio. Thank you very much. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Yeah. So I guess, why do you think that we ignore these areas? Why do we choose not to feel our feelings? Why do we ignore our intuition? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think there should be, just since this came up right away, there should be a big disclaimer that it's a useful trope to describe this collection of attributes as being traditionally female, but we definitely need to right now say that there's plenty of women who perhaps won't identify with this. I think I'm one of them, actually. Um, and there are plenty of men or plenty of people elsewhere on the gender spectrum who would very strongly identify with this. So by calling it female, you know, it's a useful shorthand, but we're not trying to say that this is all women in category X and everybody else in category Y, right? Let's just right. get out there. Yeah, I was going to say hashtag not all women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, very much so. But so let's just say, you know, we'll use female as a shorthand for people who identify with this trope of being sensitive, of being emotional, and maybe of being prone to self-doubt. And again, I think it's because there's a strong construct in the world that this way of being this objective, you know, tough, emotionless, clear-headed way of going through life is the norm or is the ideal. And if you don't measure up to that, that can certainly lead to some feelings of inadequacy and could lead you to try to suppress that side of yourself and not tap into a huge essential part of being human. This is a huge point. And it, I think it reflects the fluidity of a spectrum of everybody's existence on a different place in that, you know, sort of spectrum, like I said, it exists everywhere. And not everybody fits in a box or a Glenn in a glass, right? So not everybody fits in the glass that we're supposed to fit in because everything is fluid and changing constantly. Even outside of just talking about gender identity, your one's role that she really focused on, your job, your relationships, you know, the pedagogy of medical training, you, you have to not cry when a patient dies, or you have to just truck on when you have to do more work than your bandwidth can handle. And it's just so many things sort of define us from the outside, but they don't really help us define ourselves from the inside. And we're always fighting against that no matter who we are. Well, I think she also makes a strong point in the book, which is common sense that we're all a product of our environment and the people that were around us and the people that influenced us and, and how those experiences then created who we are and our belief system. She talks about receiving certain memos, you know, on how to be a parent and how to be a wife and, and all of these things. And then it took her a long time, as we all do as we mature, and then identify, does that memo really work for me anymore? When you think of a lot of the experiences that you have and um, how that then contributes to the way you view yourself and the outside world, I think that's what gets in our way. You know, she talks about a boulder in the stream that, you know, we are very fluid, but some things just block us. And until we learn how to either blow that boulder up or get through that situation, it's not going to flow as easily. And a lot of things in society have created the rules, so to speak, of how women are supposed to be, men are supposed to be, you know, it really takes that time for us to figure out who we are supposed to be. 
I think you make a really good point about environment because, you know, like I, like I said earlier, you know, the patriarchy hurts us all or whatever, but it's really just like the expectations that are placed on us by our family, by our peer group or whatever. And that peer group changes dependent on your environment. I mean, if you grew up in a family full of doctors and lawyers, the expectation is you're going to have a post-bachelor's degree. You're going to go on and do something. You're going to get an MBA. You're going to do that. Whereas, you know, hey, maybe you just really want to be like a construction worker. Whereas in your family, it'd be better if you were an architect, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that we all fight against expectations that are placed on us by a variety of outside sources, not just society. One of the quotes that Glennon uses is that I am a strong feminist, but I breathe the air and I still have misogyny inside of me. And so there is always that internal fight. I I mean, even my introduction for this podcast, I struggled, you know, how much do I say, you know, women are often, at least in my life, you know, supposed to be quiet and modest, and you don't want to, you know, shine your accomplishments. But again, you know, she has a wonderful quote in the book from Maya Angelou, you know, about modesty is a learned affectation. Humility is great because that comes from the inside out. It means that you are contributing because people before you have, you're following in their path and creating greatness for others. I had a hard time with the bio too. I remember one part of the book where where Glennon says, women have a, a widespread problem. When you ask them, who are they? When they have to tell you about themselves, Um, This is me completely unqualified to answer this question that I've asked myself, but they say they focus on their roles, their relationships, their positions in in situational. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm this. I'm that. Yeah. So like I gave you the like stock can like professional academic intro really quick that I have for everything everywhere. But like I could have said, you know, hey, I'm Aki. Basically, I'm a white, straight, married, a religious male doctor without kids. How are you? And that is kind of what this book is about. It's just boiling the stuff down to its true essence. And um, I think it's an important conversation. I hope this podcast doesn't become a downer about the horrible aspects of society and misogyny and, and all that stuff. But I no, think it's well, a good I don't think it's going to be a downer, but I think we have to have those conversations, right? That's kind of part of what the book is about is we have to not only have those conversations within ourselves, but outside of ourselves. Being relationally oriented, you know, it's not a bad thing. And it just depends on what you think is interesting to other people. What's interesting to people listening to this podcast? This is ASCP. This is inside the lab. This is the Leadership Institute. So what's the most interesting thing for this audience? How would you how would you define yourself and present yourself relative to that versus somebody that you meet at your kid's playgroup, right? And I think just being relationally savvy, being empathetic and being plugged into the mind states of others, that's a gift. I mean, she referred to her daughter, who was a very sensitive person, as that being her superpower. And I think one thing that's going to come up in the book quite a lot is how women, again, using it as a shorthand, tend to build these cages around themselves of social expectations. But again, part of that is kind of nice because it means that you're concerned with the feelings and the mind states of others. And people that are just off on lonely islands, yeah, maybe they don't give a, you know, one, but Mm-hmm. Is that good? Is that admirable? You know, do you want the person on the podcast who rattles off their CV for 15 interminable minutes? <laughs> no. Uh, no. no. Oh, we but don't tend also- to invite those people, so. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
But it's also, you know, yeah, some of it is very nice. Some of it also does hold people back, whether that's male or female. If they haven't done the work to really look inside and, and again, the bravery part of, um, you know, being very self-aware, self-confident and know that you're enough, whatever you are. What is, what is bravery and courage mean to you? This whole concept of caging and, and other people's expectations and our own expectations. And Jennifer, you said about, you know, that it doesn't necessarily, you know, hurt to build these cages. And I was thinking about that. And I mean, I agree on some level. Absolutely. As human beings, I think we need something to help us define ourselves and also something or multiple things to help us anchor us to others, right? Because we're all social beings that helps ground ourselves. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what the book is really is is referring, at least this is my interpretation of it, is as long as these cages don't hurt ourselves, right? Because we as long as we don't make ourselves smaller to fit into these cages of expectations that we all have created around ourselves, because in the end, our kind of, you know, maybe a philosophical job in life is to be the brightest light that we want to be and that we can be. However, you know, not in terms of bright, in terms of comparison to others, but just in, t- in terms of comparing comparison to to what we can do and I think too that's one of the reasons why so many people just love children because they are so unapologetically them right if they're upset by something they will cry they will get angry if they're angry they can start throwing things and they you know they don't have this kind of social decorum that we then these boulders in some level that we that we build later on or throughout our lives you know, and I think with that, like, what are your thoughts on how much do you think how we make decisions is based on either other people's expectations or even the expectations that we have set upon ourselves? And do we really need to break free from any and all expectations or some of them also beneficial? Well, no, any and all, definitely not. I mean, it's part of the social contract, right, that we conduct ourselves in a certain way. We obey laws and we don't needlessly offend people. And that's a a way of being relational and being cooperative. But for me, one of the most important lessons I've learned in the last 10 years or so of my life is basically that nobody cares. And that sounds sounds really awful, but let me explain because, you know, sometimes I think you can feel really inhibited. You can feel like the eyes are on you. You're up, you know, let's say you want to take up a new hobby. Like this week, I got my motorcycle license for the, and it's the first time I've been out riding a motorcycle. Sweet. And yeah. It can uh-huh. be, be very foolhardy, but whatever it is, but you know, you so see you get out there and you're on the bike and you're like, oh, I look like a noob. And there's a little voice inside your head that says, everybody's looking at you and thinking, gosh, she looks like a noob. Look, she looks like she does not know how to ride a motorcycle. And that is entirely accurate. That is true. So that's perfectly fine. And I know that in reality, people will look at that. And maybe they'll laugh for about three seconds and then immediately put it out of their mind because they don't know me and they don't care. It's not interesting. They're not going to go home and regale people at the dinner table like, guess what I saw today? And even if they did, that would still last like five minutes and then nobody would care. I think, you know, we can we can project these impressions onto others and it can become so inhibitory unnecessarily and learning to get rid of that kind of stuff while keeping the good stuff keeping that I'm not going to offend people. I'm not going to shock people. I'm not going to upset them. I'm going to abide by the the rules of the road, so to speak. That's the good stuff. We don't want to get rid of that. 
Yeah, I think that I, I always like to say whenever I have these types of conversations with my friends, like, yeah, no one really cares about you, man. And I don't mean that in like an unempathetic or or horrible way that, you know, if I die tomorrow, no one would care. I don't mean it that way. What I mean is to use your example, Jennifer, yes, if I saw you on the road and you're kind of wobbling along, it's like, ooh, yeah, she looks like she's a rookie on that bike. You're right. I'm going to think, I might think it. I may even tell my friends about it later. But really what I'm thinking about is walking down the street and I'm going over my grocery list in my head and I got, and I'm thinking about my to-do list for tomorrow. And I'm thinking about, you know, like relationship things or whatever. Like I'm really self-involved with what's going on in my own life and my own head. So while I might be looking at you and maybe making a judgment or not, in the grand scheme of things, I don't really care. Yeah, right. And so, you know, me worrying about you while you're really thinking about your grocery list, keeping me from doing something that I actually really wanted to try. I wanted to feel the wind in my hair. Actually, I can't because I would always wear a helmet just so everybody knows. But, you know, <laughs> I, want to, I want to feel the freedom of the road, baby. And to go to my grave, never feeling the freedom of the road. Just because, because you're is thinking about her grocery list. <laughs> That's what we want to talk And I think people who are more relationally oriented, which is a good thing, are going to feel naturally more inhibited because they know they're thinking about others a lot. And so they can just project that others are thinking about me and, it, and, and who knows what kind of judgments they might be passing. I think that there was a really good example of this in the uh, early on in the book where the author had noticed her daughter or, or maybe it's her son's friends and some of her daughter's friends were all kind of like hanging out. And the author walks into the room and is like, hey, who's hungry? And all the boys are like, uh, I am. But the girls had to look at each other yeah. and be like, oh, wait, you know, like I might be hungry, but if no one else is eating, then I'm, I'm not going to eat. It's like we ignore our own needs to fit in with a group or to not look like we're eating too much or whatever. I thought that that was a really good example of kind of what you're saying. That example is excellent. It's not just limited to kids. Well, the kids had the, the who's hungry one. Uh, I remember there was a part of the book where Abby said she's going to take up ice hockey or something. And it just, just because she wanted to, she always wanted to. She did when she was a kid. And Glennon was like, I guess that's fine. Sure. Whatever. You have no reasons. Glennon also later in the book wanted to take up guitar, but had to justify it with like having to play for parties and learn specific songs that were meaningful and had to really like give some currency to exchange this thing that she just wanted to do for herself. So it doesn't go away. You know, and, and as we look outward for approval or what other people think of us, you know, it's important, as Jennifer pointed out, what are those, you know, wild dreams that, you know, uh, feed our soul that create who we are? But also understanding, you know, I think I think it might have been Jennifer that said that social contract. You know, there's a difference in the expectations of what we want to do and our behavior inside and outside of the professional arena. As a, a laboratory director, I spend way too much time on staff teaching them what professionalism is. It's not always okay to be your wild self when you're in front of patients and, and need to care for individuals. And uh, uh, I'm, you know, it's just a different world out there. In one part, I am grateful that I was raised in an environment, well, you know, not necessarily that my father would say children should be seen and not heard. And <laughs> we were quieted down very early in life. But also the understanding of, you know, deep respect and how to behave around grownups and, 
and um, you know how with the expectations when you are in a professional setting or you know anything in the external world and and not everybody really is thinking that thoughtfully about that anymore. I kind of want to segue into the idea because we've 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 focused a lot on like getting out of our own cages and trying to like not think of not project our own insecurities on other people and then then goes back on ourselves to like inhibit ourselves. But at the same time, we need, we do need, we're, we're a social, we're social animals and we need other people and we especially need the advice of other people. What do you guys think about the balance between like forging your own path and listening to advice from others? I thought there was a really good anecdote in the book where the author was struggling. You know, she, she and her husband were having marital problems. You know, she's trying to decide, should I stay or should I go? And she's looking at all sorts of sources. She's doing research and asking friends and and doing all of this. Uh, like she's really like trying to look up a lot for external advice when really the answer is inside of her the, the whole time. But how do you balance that? Because we do need advice from others sometimes. That's one of the quotes that I underlined in the book. It says, this life is mine alone. So I've stopped asking people for directions to places they've never been. You know, when you're just throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks, you're going to get all kinds of stuff back. And is that really true for you? Is that, you know, when I've been there, when you're so desperate for a solution because you don't have the answer, you're going to reach out. But then again, some of the garbage that you pull in is is not true to who you are. Yeah, I always thought like, I mean, we're, you know, we're all smart people. We can so easily argue both sides of a decision or however many sides there are, right? We can rationalize everything. So how do you make a decision? And I agree with the author on this book as well. It's just, I think, at least for me, there's something internally that guides me towards the right decision. And again, uh, you know, this, so my decisions are not necessarily a mental process or maybe this is a mental process until I'm maybe down to like two options, two or three and then it's this gut feeling that helps me decide because, like I said, you know, we can all, there's, it's so easily arguable every side. Jennifer, Aki, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's this really ancient distinction, again, in philosophy about matters of taste versus matters of morality. And so I think it's an important distinction. So if my truth involved going up to the polar ice caps and clubbing baby seals for pleasure, you know, I probably shouldn't live my truth. Right. That's a matter right. of I mean, I think I hope you all agree. You looked very solemn when I said that. So, yes. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just co co genting on that. Like, wow, that's that's a long trip for some baby seals. Would, yes. Yeah, it would be. And <laughs> the ice caps are all melting. So it would really be a lot of swimming. But, you know, I think each of us, you know, we're individuals and we have kind of the unique sort of shape of our soul. And I think, you know, very deeply, intrinsically who you are. And again, it just goes back to self-knowledge, but who you are, which matters of taste are right for you. You know, it can be something incredibly trivial as to which flavor of ice cream you prefer, or it could really be something much bigger in terms of how you're meant to live and the kinds of things you're meant to do. You bring up an interesting point. Um, I'm just going to shoot this out, Aki, and then you can ramble over me. Um, I think it's an interesting observation that I've made for, for years. It's like little kids, like little kids, like younger than seven or eight. They just know who they are, man. And then whenever you see them grow up, if, if they if they're remain true to themselves as adults, they're not generally that different of people, right? It's like people don't, I don't want to say people don't change or can't change, but like it, who you intrinsically are, 
I don't think changes a whole lot over your life. So that's kind of to your point, Jennifer, right? It's like, you kind of know intrinsically who you are. You just have to be true to that. Unless it involves clubbing baby seals. So we agree. (laughs) I'm a parent. And I know a couple of you are too. And I think one of the best parts of the journey as a mother is individuation. I always say you get the kid that you get. You know, you get this like unformed little potato of a human. And you watch as time progresses, you watch their personality just unfurl. And they go from being less potato-like to being more human-like. And, you know, I can look at, my oldest child's only 10, but I can look at him now at 10 and then just rewind the tape and go back to babyhood and see, yeah, there is this strand. There is this continuous identity. I can see him at six months and see him at the 10-year-old. And I can maybe wind the tape forward a little bit and just project into the future as to what kind of teenager or young man he might be. And, you know, you shepherd this child through that journey and, you know, you try to encourage their strengths and help them work on their weaknesses. But, you know, you have this, this complete individual separate being, you know, from the absolute beginning. And it's, it's a fascinating part, you know, of, of life. Building on the natural progression of ice cream flavors and clubbing baby seals, my only experience with the children really on a firsthand basis is my own childhood, right? So uh, talking about the identity, Kelly, you said when you're seven or eight, like, Circling back to the forging your own path question, I I lost my brother when I was really young, right? Died of cancer, kind of obviously informed my path into medicine. That's like the, the, the stock personal statement. But that's one example of many where for years and years, I thought that I was unique, uh, uniquely traumatized and special and isolated. The truth that everybody's going through some kind of trauma. You grow up as the child of immigrant parents like I do, and you have to forge your own path because they haven't done things in the same system. Or when you're the first person to go to graduate school, that's the same thing. Or seeking changes to relationships or jobs or future planning is all on you. So we're always learning and, and kind of taking bits and pieces. I'm, I'm digressing from the content of the book, but you're always sort of putting a big thing together that makes the story of you, which is what sort of Glennon does in these little pieces of stories that she put together in this book. Yeah, I think that's perfectly aligned with exactly what so much of the book is talking about. Remember, right in the beginning of her, of the book in the opening pages, she asks herself um, something like, who was I before I came in the world? Uh, Who the world told me to be? You know, so I think it goes exactly aligned with everything that we said, like, you you know, the thread of, of our own internal person uh, that was there from birth as we are all uh, agreeing on right now. So what, what, I mean, how would you all describe yourself as a young child? Awesome. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Beyond. A sweet potato. Uh, yeah, not just a regular potato. Uh, hello, I was a sweet potato with brown sugar. <laughs> I was a wild child. So. <laughs> Say more. I want to know, Patty, as a wild child, tell me. Um, well, I was I was third in line out of four. And, um, you know, so I had two older siblings that, um, you know, didn't necessarily put me on the straight and narrow. And then, of course, I had to outdo both of them. So and, the, and that's, you know, kind of what I related into the book as well. You know, Glennon had her own struggles with depression and addiction. And, and she talked about, you know, that she thought that she was the one that's sick, but then she turned around and she said, am I really the one that's sick? Or is every, if I'm breathing the toxic air of what's sick around me? 
And she correlated her being very sensitive to, I chose eating and purging and drinking and drugging because I was sick. But what I realized is those were just ineffective solutions to the problem. And so how she turned into sobriety by really understanding why she was a feminist and then an activist, because it was the environment around her that that she felt was sick. And how could she help? Um, and I think we all have a little bit of that. Again, going back to our environment, she talks about being at age 10. And then something just shifted for her where she then became aware of, you know, society around her, the expectations for her being a woman or sexuality. And, and I think there can be that kind of shift in our children. I, I have a daughter that's 30 now and I watched her shift. And, you know, those teenage years can be very precarious of which direction that they go. You know, I have a Glennon story of my own, right? Back when I was a sweet potato, I was a small sweet potato. And I had glasses that was very short and scrawny and I got bullied sometimes or whatever. But I remember I was like 10, right? And there was gym class or something, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. Maybe I was 12 or something. And I just got fed up with all the bullying. And my parents, my mom and dad were great about instilling confidence and all the good stuff that you need as a kid. Um, and I just said, screw it. And I'm sorry, Jennifer, I'm going to do it. But I'm a goddamn cheetah. Right. And I cut all the sleeves off of my T-shirts for gym class. And I just went sleeveless all the time. And I wanted to be the confident person that I wanted to be in my head. Anyway, I stayed that way since then. Right. I mean, I've had several other, you know, I see you on screen and you have sleeves. Not underneath. This is a pure dicky underneath the suit. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. But I've had several like chapters of like that in my life. Most of them involve sleeves. I'm sorry because of social constructs, like you said. And I was um, say, you know, no, uh, yeah. no uh, sandals in the lab and all that. Yeah, yeah, lab safety. But anyway, it's it's empowering when you have those moments. You just have to find the opportunity to take them. Yeah, well, you've led me to my next question. Look at that, Aki. Um, I kind of want to talk about what particular age in your childhood that stands out as a per- pivotal turning point for you? You you just you've talked about a few of them for you, Aki, with the with the gym class business and then with losing your brother. You know, I, I found it interesting in the book that she was basically like, yeah, when I was 10, this is when I started to started to put myself in that cage. And listen, man, I'll tell you what, uh, low T, I don't know how it was in the Netherlands, but in, at least in the States, middle school is not great for anybody. And it's really not great for kids, for girls. Really? Like, and it's, uh, oof, yeah, everyone's just mean. Everyone's just mean. At least that was my, that was my experience. That sounds um, horrible. Well, it's, yeah, the, it's, so it's, the like I, it's the stage in life when you start defining yourself by your peer groups and no longer by your family, you know? Yeah. And everyone's jockeying for position. And of course, everyone's undergoing this intense period of identity construction. And that, you know, finishes up by the time you're in your early adulthood, but it really starts around then. So just imagine this horrible soup of people with hormones sloshing around, suddenly caring intensely about what everyone thinks around them and trying to figure out who they are and what flavor of person they're going to be. With little to no musical numbers as advertised. Yeah. And that's when you (laughs) end up making your absolutely worst fashion decisions we all have photos from that. Well, at least we did. I don't know. You, you guys have seen the kids now. It's like they, they, they're all on Instagram. So they're all fashion plates. We should talk about identity construction and image construction and social media. We should definitely talk about that. <laughs> that's, a, but, that's a whole different podcast. 
to your point, yeah, there are some pivotal moments I know from from my childhood that kind of where I put myself in that cage. I, and I always felt like, like looking back, I grew up in a small town and I just always felt like a very square peg in a round hole. And it wasn't until I left for college and then truly even after college is where I really found started to find my tribe and really be comfortable with who I am. So like, yeah, I, I turned it over to you guys. Like, where was the point in your lives that you maybe changed or, or a childhood experience that kind of was a turning point for you guys? Well, I will say for me, my Aunt Pauline always said that the Eshelman family or the Eshelman women were late bloomers. <laughs> so I might have had a few pivotal times in my childhood, but I really think it was after my divorce. So I was about 35. And then reality hit of why did I make the decisions that I did? And then really taking that deep dive to examine my choices, how I got to the place I was. And then, uh, you know, that fierce determination of who I wanted to be and get out of that cage and release what society was supposed to be for me or the the things that, you know, I had misinterpretations of and, and become my own self. Yeah, I, I, I can echo that to the word with Patty. Um, it was the same for me. Exactly. And it involved in a way kind of setting fire to a previous life, just burning that boat. But when I came out on the other side, it was just a process of intense joy and delight and, and rediscovery and authenticity. Actually, funnily, you know, it was a, such a similar story to what Glennon was saying in her in the book. But when I turned 40, I, I like to do a lot of distance running and trail running and compete kind of regionally in that. And so I ran 40 miles on my 40th birthday and I found some guy in the woods and just some dude. And he was like just walking his dog. And I, and I he, he happened to be at the 40th mile marker, like when I was getting ready to cross. So I said, hey, man, will you take this video? And he's like, oh, yeah, you ran 40 miles. Like what? Like this week? And I was like, no. Today. But anyway, no, so, like over the past five hours, yeah. man. That's what so I've anyway, been doing. He took, so he he was staying there and he shot this video. And so I finished the 40 miles and I like leapt over the finish line and sort of said 40 miles like this. And um sent it to my parents. And my parents said, Wow, that's the like the most authentic smile and expression of yourself. We have not seen that, Jennifer, in 15 years. And, you know, it's just fantastic to see her back. Really cool. Yeah, that feels really nice, doesn't it? It does. It makes me think of, like, are there certain parts? Like, what was it that in those moments, right, of, of re-self-discovery, are we, like, reconnecting with a part of ourselves that we have neglected for X amount of years, right? You said your parents said for 15 years they hadn't seen you smile like that. We're reflecting on ourselves and our own life. Do you feel that there are things that you have denied about yourself because either they didn't fit in with society's expectations or your own? And then how can we kind of reignite with that part of ourselves? Yeah, that's such a superb question. And it's sort of like for me, if I parse it all out, I, I would say a lot of it was just exigency. It was sacrifices made in order to just get by because the marriage I was in was one of utter misery. And it was just, is this the hill you want to die on? Is this the hill you want to die on? Well, you've already been through stuff that seems to be like 10 times worse. So it's really not that bad if you're not going to go run 40 miles. Right. And then you finally find yourself after enough years of that saying, you know, you barely recognize yourself. And of course, 
these are sacrifices and choices that do not need to be made. You know, I, I will draw a very sharp distinction that we can't all live in this hedonistic palace of endless self-gratification, that there are hard choices and there are sacrifices to be made. And that's what you do. That's what part of being an adult means or working in a job or being a parent or anything else. You, you must make these kinds of sacrifices sometimes. But then you find out, you know what, there's ones you, you didn't need to make at all. These are false dichotomies. You don't need to choose between these two things. They are not opposed to each other. You can have a both and and not an either or. And that can be a little bit of, a bit tricky to, to come to terms with, I think. This is a really like interesting way to look at it. Lottie, my answer to that question is the same as the one that Kelly just brought up. Uh, we're all sort of in the science world, right? So this is a very scientific way of thinking, constantly adjusting the way we're moving toward a goal or moving through time, doing something. The two examples I gave about the formative events in my childhood being eight, being 10, they kept happening throughout my life. I'm sure they kept happening to everybody. Kelly, life is just like a big D&D game and we're all just rolling dice. And sometimes we get a nat 20 and we get to do whatever we want. And sometimes we get nothing and we have to make sacrifices or right, or we get a, a natural moment. one and then we're the ones, yeah. ones that get clubbed in the head. Absolutely. Right. Sometimes we go backwards, right. Uh, but it's always shifting and always moving. And it just depends on how you can thrive in the in the time, the moment in time, the situation you're in and with the people you're with. Yeah, I think the author in the book says a lot, actually, like life is hard, man. Life is hard. Life is supposed to be hard. Uh, you don't want to make it harder on yourself. Like you're saying, Jennifer, by making choices maybe that you should be making that don't like actually fit into your vision of what you want your life to be. You know, like, listen, man, you don't have to get married and right out of med school or right out of college and then get the house in the suburbs with the yard and the picket fence and the two dogs and the three kids. You don't have to do that. You truly don't. Never. You know, but, <laughs> but, you know, like so many people have that ideation or that construct in, in, in their head. It's like, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. You know, so there's a difference between like, yeah, life is hard and you have to kind of deal with stuff but also don't make it harder on yourself by living inauthentically. I think one of my favorite chapters or, you know, areas in the book was on uh, the doorbell ringing, you know, <laughs> how, how you're at home and the doorbell rings and it's like, what the heck is that? And, and it's, it's such a, a jarring thing. And you're arguing within yourself, why would anybody ring my doorbell? Who's going to answer it? But then she talked about how when you answer that door, that you get a gift, that there's a package. And the part of that package is the opportunity to work through perhaps a, a very difficult situation. But then what do you learn? What does anger teach you? And, and you know, how can you evolve from that and, and you know, the uh, metamorphosize or transform into a happier and living that most beautiful life ever by addressing and engaging in some of those difficult situations, because you'll never know joy unless you know pain. Patty, I just want to add that was a very important part of the book to me because it was about grief with her sister and with her own life and, and other things. I mean, grief is sometimes the doorbell that changes your life. And she says you can't avoid it, even if you want to, but don't avoid it because it's transformative. It's a cocoon. Yeah, there there was a an earlier chapter in the book where she was talking about make, making it very obvious that when she's talking about a beautiful life and whatever, that does not mean some picture perfect, marvelous 
easy thing where you just, oh, if you just walk through the door, you will have no more troubles. You know, one of the stories that she told was a woman that wrote to her when she was still operating her mommy blog. And the woman said, you know, she's, she's 34. Her 10-year-old son had just died of some incurable disease. And her seven-year-old son was dying of the same incurable disease, uh, which she didn't specify. Of course, the pediatric pathologist in me really wanted to know what the disease was. You know, so she's, and the woman was anguished and she was saying, how, how can I do this? And Glennon's response, which, you know, maybe is a little bit hokey, but she said, can you, what is the most beautiful story that you can write about a mother and her sons? And the woman thought about it and she said, you know what? It's this one. This is it. You know, this is what I've been given and this is my life. And there's no door you can walk through that will make that go away. That's not the point. The point is just, okay, this is your life. You know, each of us has had losses. Each of us has had pain. And now what do you do? And who are you and how do you handle that? Right. But what do you do with that big old sack of lemons? Absolutely. We're kind of edging up on our time here. What are some passages from the book that maybe really spoke to you that maybe we haven't talked about yet? It's not a passage per se, but it's a story where she was on a book tour in the Midwest. And this this older woman, American flag sweater with granny written on it, asked a question I forget what it was. It was a little longer than, than I remember. But it, the last line was, why is everybody so gay all of a sudden? And <laughs> she said some joke about it being GMOs or something. But I think it was a great night as to have a conversation about why, you know, we're open about having conversations nowadays where we weren't 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And it's very critical, especially like I'm going to revisit this topic, but including me in this podcast, it, it feels like a privilege and something that I paid a lot of attention to for several weeks to make sure that I was definitely doing my part. But it opens up a really strong conversation about what we should be doing to get the right conversations going, to make the right calls, to you know celebrate the right people and, and do that well. Yeah, I remember I was 21, 22, uh, studying abroad in Malaysia. And I mean, for those of you who don't know, I grew up in Amsterdam. So yeah, some friends had two dads, some had two moms, some had one mom, some, you know, there were just, there was never a point in my upbringing that I, it was just such a natural, all families look different. Like there was never a conversation where someone had to sit me down and say, this is how certain families look because they all just look different. And I was like, cool. Okay. It's not a big deal. And I remember when I was living in Malaysia and one of my friends that I met there was from the U.S. And he explained to me that his family didn't accept him because he was, because he is bisexual. And I had never heard of that concept, not the bisexual that I heard of, but like that, what do you mean your parents don't accept you? Like it was, it literally, it blew my mind wide open as that, you know, and maybe this was very naive of me having, you know, been brought up in the, in the Netherlands and Amsterdam and just, but I literally ha- didn't even know that you could not love your children unconditionally just because of their sexual orientation or any part of their identity and who they are. And I just remember it was such a poignant experience in, in my upbringing into it, well, into adulthood of like, yeah, like that, how can that, how can it even be that you don't accept someone for living their truth, right? I mean, that's really what the book is about. 
That's another quote or that, that I underlined in the book. It says, the thing that gets me thinking and questioning most deeply is a leader who wants me not to think or question. And, and so, you know, when you think about where did that come from that, you know, you have to be white, straight, you know, all of these, um, what is good and what is bad um, in any society, who says that? Who determines that? And, you know, being able to think on our own and question and come up with our own ideas is what's healthy. And it takes that brave person to ask those kind of questions that Aki mentioned. Remember all those examples of, of kids coming out to their families on somewhere on the queer spectrum and the, the parents say, oh, don't worry, I'll love you no matter what, as if to say that that was a disappointment or a bad thing. And the rephrasing of that conversation is exactly what you're talking about right there. Well, there's one thing I was thinking about, because we, we put this book on, you know, from ASCP and to talk about the lab and lab culture. And in general, you know, the lab pro workforce tends to be about 75 or 80% female. And so, you know, and this book is written and geared toward women. So, you know, what do you guys think about, about that in terms of how this book can inform working in the lab? Since it is predominantly female, I, I think, you know, at least the, the members that I've worked with over the years that are members of my team that are um, male, they really have to know how to get along with people of the opposite sex. And, you know, I've had members on my team that just couldn't do that. And then I've also had, you know, female members on my team that couldn't get along with each other. I do think that, you know, it's a struggle for everybody for their own personal identity. And particularly since, you know, the, the lab is predominantly women. I've seen all ranges of those that are, you know, afraid to speak up, that have fabulous ideas that you're trying to encourage to build their strength and, and help them to their greatest success. Uh, and for whatever reason, they just can't get there. And so it is a struggle. I think it reflects a lot, too, on, on what leadership might look like in the lab, right? We're talking about valuing individuals for individualism and, and making sure everyone has a space to exist just in this book in general, but this translates to lab work, the lab culture. And you're talking about the male point of view. Again, I'll tell you, right? Basically white, straight, happily married, a religious male doctor without kids, but I have a responsibility, right? I have a role in this conversation to, to make sure that I'm supporting women, not just women I know, but all women, right? To, to make sure that I use my privilege in whatever small instances to, to be able to change something for the better and to make sure that my allyship isn't performative, right? I'm not doing this to, to brag about it. I'm doing this to help people. And those parts, I think, go into leadership in lab culture and leadership everywhere. Jennifer, what are your thoughts on your own question? My own question? Oh, well, I, I mean, my first thought is that it was just a really fabulous question. I mean, whoever came up with that was an absolute bloody genius. No all the credits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I guess our time's growing short. Well, it was nice talking. Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's the whole the whole notion of these the self imposed cage, and it's interesting because you'd think one narrative is that men help put women in cages, and have done so for millennia. And so, if you have a workplace where there are many fewer men, what do you see there? Do you see those cages kind of erode away? or not, who's policing the cages? Is it women policing other women? 
you know, what are the dynamics there? How do women react to women in managerial or leadership positions versus men in managerial leadership positions? You know, I think all that is, is worth, worth thinking about. In the book, she talks about, you know, watching her daughter play soccer. And the opposing team has a gal that's rolling her eyes and walks with a swagger and she's good and she knows it. And, and Glennon is sitting there getting all worked up. And why is this, the, why is this girl just really irritating me? And then she realized, you know, we, we had, or she had this conditioning. I feel like I've had that conditioning where we trust more men that are successful and we suspect or not trust women, you know, that are successful. And she thought to herself, this, this girl is 12. Why am I getting all worked up when, you know, we should be lifting each other up and instead of getting these feelings of, you know, competition or, you know, who does she think she is? You know, I see that in the workplace quite a bit. Yeah. And I think that's just good human practice regardless like if someone is irritating you make it about yourself right look inside and see what aspect of this person is rubbing me wrong and why like what is it about me and my own conditioning my own preferences values experiences that is 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 causing this little irk you know because i think that in the end it's not the other person's fault that they're irritating you you know, it's not necessarily your fault either, but I think it's at least your responsibility to dig inward and say, all right, let me just figure it out. It's a whole mirror theory. You know, if you're pointing it outward, turn it back and, and look at your own reflection and understand why, why it's creating the emotions that are inside you. Yeah, because yeah, it's like a thing, like if you're pointing at someone, at least three fingers are pointing towards yourself, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> I like this ending. <laughs> just do an hour of colloquialisms like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, well, thank you all so very much. Uh, this is just a great discussion because I think this book on some level is, I think it's just, you know, whether or not you you like everything, you like the concept, I think it's just, it starts good conversations. And I think we just had a really great conversations where I absolutely learned um, a lot from all of you. So thank you so much for, for participating today. Thank you. Same here. It was a great experience. And then last to our listeners, as always, you can receive CME and CMLE for listening to this podcast. You can look for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website at www.acp.org. <laughs>